last spoke to Matt Kaplan, the host of the excellent program, Planetary Radio, a show well-known to listeners at KDVS and KZVAR. He mentioned that one of the show's regular contributors, Emily Lakdawalla, was calling 2015 the year of the dwarf planet. We Earthlings did, in fact, get our first close-up look at both Ceres, the largest body in the asteroid belt, and Pluto, the largest body in the Kuiper belt. We've hoped to speak to Emily Lakdawalla for years about her summaries of what space scientists have found in our solar system. Emily's a tireless advocate for these explorations and works hard to explain their findings to the public. She's used just about every means possible to educate us, including podcasts, blogs, and videos. We've mentioned her work on many occasions and hope you've gotten her reports directly from Planetary Radio or from her published articles in Sky and Telescope, where she serves as a contributing editor. NASA warned us last summer they would need months to gather up the data sent back from the New Horizons flyby. Those results have included some truly spectacular photos from Pluto. We think it's time we finally talked about those findings, and thus we're delighted to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Emily Lakdawalla. Thanks very much for having me. Can, can we start with that amazing high-res photo that was streamed back from Pluto not too long ago? For my money, that was one of the great photos ever taken of a planet, I think, in the whole solar system. It shows this varied topography, layered atmosphere. Really, really a spectacular photo. Yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about, and I have to agree with you. It is probably one of the great photos of space exploration, um, in part just because of its resolution. There is so much detail. You can zoom in and zoom in and see mountains on Pluto, and, and you can see layers in the haze and the atmosphere extending yeah. far above the surface, and, and you can see the mountains casting shadows on ground fog, which is just astonishing. But what makes the photo extra awesome is what it represents, because New Horizons had to be on the back side of Pluto, had to have passed by Pluto in order to take that picture. So that, that alone makes it amazing. Well, a lot of folks uh, didn't have, I think, high expectations for Pluto. They thought something that far out the edge of the solar system has to be pretty dull and sort of uh, just a lifeless place. And yet uh, there's finding mountains everywhere, possible volcanoes. There's, there's cleared out plains that's been resurfaced. Something really amazing is going on uh, as an energy source, which is, I guess, still mysterious. Is any kind of consensus uh, emerging on what's going on? There's definitely no consensus yet, and the sense that I get, I've been following the, what the scientists have said closely since they flew past, and I think that the science team is just about as puzzled now <laughs> as they were immediately after the flyby. Um, and one of the reasons that they're so puzzled is just because the surface is so diverse. It, it's not just that it has mountains. It has mountains and plains and canyons and uh, these uh, these dendritic valleys, like river-looking valleys, and and it has fewer craters than we thought, and it has weird stuff happening in the craters. And there are so many different things to explain that I think it's going to take a really long time to untangle. And I guess New Horizons isn't done. Three years from now, we're going to get another flyby. It'll be a much smaller object out there in the Kuiper Belt, but uh, that's bound to be uh, be a curiosity. Absolutely. And they are. it will be a much smaller object, but they're going to fly past it much closer than they flew past Pluto. So they should get way higher resolution images of this thing than they got of Pluto. It's actually interesting to compare. There's a European mission orbiting a comet right now, um, and that comet is just a few kilometers across compared to Pluto's couple thousand kilometers across. The thing that New Horizons will visit in a couple of years is about exactly intermediate. It's, it's about uh, 
10 times smaller than Pluto, and, and it's about 10 times bigger than the comet that Rosetta's visiting. So it'll give us this intermediate look at a uh, biggish small object, uh, or a very small big object in the Kuiper Belt. Well, when we talk about the Kuiper Belt, there's a lot of debate going on. And, of course, uh, there was this, this, this unfortunate controversy about what constitutes a planet. And, and, uh, and Pluto got demoted, and I guess it's still demoted. Some are calling it for being reinstated. But uh, uh, this is sort of unfortunate. This argument's going back and forth, isn't it, between over whether Eris was a planet? No, it couldn't be a planet. And Mike Brown uh, killed, off, uh, killed off Pluto as a planet, at least temporarily. You know, personally, I think that's one of the least interesting conversations to have about this, because regardless of what we call it, Pluto is absolutely fascinating. Um, and personally, what I think is unfortunate about the planet debate is that we're losing the reason that Pluto got demoted, which was the discovery of a whole lot of other worlds. And in all of this conversation about Pluto, we're forgetting that uh, the reason Pluto got demoted is there's this huge diversity of places, and they have wonderful names like Eris and Quawar and Varuna and Maki Maki and Ixion and Sedna, and they're extremely diverse. We know they're very colorful. And so Pluto is just the first example of a whole new population of worlds that we can hardly even imagine. We need to go to all those, all those places, too. Well, Sedna and a lot of these other bodies are finding out there have these really peculiar orbits. And there was a lot of publicity here about a week or two ago uh, claiming that to have these orbits, and again, we have Mike Brown in action and like another collaborator, saying they must be influenced by a really large planet way, way out there creating these weird orbits. Uh, are you optimistic we're going to be able to find that planet? Uh, that's a that's a good question to ask um, because I believe that the general results of of their study are true. I think it's it's quite likely that there's another undiscovered planet out there, but it remains to be seen whether it's going to be in the place that they predict that it is. At least they make some pretty solid predictions, some testable predictions. So um, they're out there right now trying to use giant telescopes like Subaru to find this um, putative ninth planet, and other people are out there looking too. So I think that will be able to um, at least eliminate the possibility, either discover it or eliminate the possibility within a few years, like five years. Um, but even if there isn't a planet in the spot that they predict, I, I do think it's very likely there are planet-sized worlds out there that we haven't discovered yet. It's fascinating. I, I know there was a recent study, I guess, based on the Cassini data that said that we, we now know that the planet couldn't be here and it couldn't be there, so they're, at least they're trying to do some uh, some process of elimination. That's right. You know, there are surveys that they and other workers have done to try to find large uh, bodies in the Kuiper Belt, and so those surveys have eliminated, eliminated the possibility that it's close, um, on the closer part of its orbit, which isn't very surprising, because when you have a world on an elliptical orbit, it moves really fast when it's closest to the sun, and it moves super slowly when it's farthest from the sun, and what that means is that it spends most of its time in its o orbit very far from the sun, where it would be very slow-moving and very dim and therefore very hard to spot. So they're focusing their search efforts on the part of the sky where it would be in the slowest, most distant part of its orbit. And that search is not going to be easy. So it will take, I'm not exaggerating, it will take several years for them to cover the entire possible space. Yeah. Let's talk about the other dwarf planet, Ceres. We got a close look at it, and the surface has these very strange white spots and, and a bizarre mountain, and I guess this is causing a lot of head-scratching. It is. Ceres is really fun, um, because from Earth, we could, we could get a better look at Ceres than we could at Pluto uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope. And 
we got these rotational movies of Ceres that showed this really bright spot appearing once, once in orbit. So you knew it was some kind of bright spot on the surface. And all the time that Dawn was approaching Ceres, my money was on a fresh impact that showed water ice because uh-huh. there's water ice all over the place in the solar system. We know there's water on Ceres, um, at, or at least within Ceres. It's, it's got to be made partially of water because its density is less than that of rock. And so the only other common material in the solar system that's less dense than rock is, is water ice. And so you know that it's got to be there. And so that's what I was figuring the whole time. But it really looks like it's not water ice. Um, some of the early results from the Dawn mission are suggesting instead that it's salt. And so what you have is Ceres probably at one time had a subsurface ocean. As the subsurface ocean began to freeze, you would concentrate the leftover remaining water would be saltier and saltier, and you might have had these leftover pockets of of salt-rich material close to the surface, and a fresh impact must have exposed some of that material, and it's a very bright salt. Well, deep oceans under under some of the moons of Jupiter and and Saturn are, of course, a a hot topic. that we could talk about, but I, I want to pick your brains about 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 Mars. I know you published some pieces about the red planet. Uh, we had mm-hmm. on William Hartman many years ago. He published a wonderful atlas of, of, of Mars and makes a really good case that there's ice everywhere, and yet we keep getting headlines about, well, they think they finally <laughs> found water on Mars. It's like, well, didn't we find water a long, long time ago? Is, is NASA being afraid of being ridiculed like Percival Lowell and his canals? It's a running joke, actually, in, among space journalists that NASA discovers water on Mars at least once a year. Anybody with a halfway decent telescope can discover water on Mars for themselves. <laughs> if you point a good telescope at Mars, you can see polar caps. Those are made largely of water ice, so it's not hard to discover water on Mars. So, so you know, we joke about this, but the fact is that, that what NASA is looking for is something a little bit more... Um, uh, a little bit more specific than that. So there's a couple different ways you can look for water. You're either asking about present-day water or you're asking about water in the past. Now, for present-day water, some of the news, probably what Bill Hartman was talking about, was the discovery by Mars Odyssey that water ice covers the globe everywhere, especially in the northern lowlands. There is tons and tons and tons of ice buried just beneath the surface. Yeah. And that's when, what led to the Phoenix mission, which landed in... Uh, near Mars' North Pole in, I think, 2008, and actually dug just below the surface and, and actually sampled some of that water ice. What I think is is the most intriguing and, and saddest news about the discovery of water ice everywhere beneath the surface of Mars is that one of the Viking landers, which, which they had scoops, if it had just dug like <laughs> another five centimeters deeper, oh it would have come across water ice way back in the 70s, and maybe the history of Mars exploration would have been a little different. So that's present-day water, and that's really good news if you're interested in human exploration of Mars because it, you would land in a relatively low elevation. You could just take a shovel and dig, and you'd have water. Um, water is obviously necessary for human survival. It's also useful for generating power if you dissociate it into hydrogen and oxygen. So there's, there's a lot of uses for that. So it's, it's very good news for, for humans that there's so much water in the present day on the surface of Mars. But then there's past water, and the reason we're interested in past water is because we'd really like to know if Mars used to be able to support life the way that Earth presently can. And most of what uh, past orbiters and landers had found was that Mars water tended to be a very rare thing, um, occasional flood, uh, it was very acidic, very sulfur-rich, but recent orbiters had discovered evidence for little tiny spots preserving the most ancient history of Mars in a time that maybe it looked like the water might be 
more amenable to Earth-like life, and that's what Curiosity went to Mars to follow up. And so Curiosity is now exploring these most very, very ancient rocks that show signs of ancient rivers running across the surface, tumbling rocks, and making lakes, actually just sitting there, lakes full of water. That would have been the kind of environment that Earth-like life would have liked to live in. Well, I gather from the, from, from the studies of the topography that we think that much of the northern part of Mars was in a shallow ocean. And I guess this is the great mystery. Where could, that, where could all of that water have gone that it was absorbed in the crust? I mean, is it ice? Where is it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and actually, not all Mars geologists agree that there was a northern ocean. Oh. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's a definite possibility, but it's also uh, not necessary that there was an ocean in that northern basin. And, and there is some back and forth debate on that. Um, but there was a fair amount of water running across Mars' surface at one point in its past. Where did it go? Uh, the, the evidence from Mars' odyssey is that a bunch of it is still sitting in the subsurface. There's meters thick of water sitting beneath those northern lowlands. And that's a fair amount of water. It's not as much as Earth has, but it's quite a lot. And so um, a lot of it then you know, went into the subsurface. Mars probably also lost a fair amount of it because it lost a lot of its atmosphere after its uh, magnetic field shut down and it couldn't shield its atmosphere against the solar wind anymore. So some of its at atmosphere and therefore some of its water was blown away by uh, the solar wind over the course of its history. And the guy that was still trying to figure out exactly how that happened with the atmosphere and uh, some new probes are heading out there to, to try and uh, assess that, are they not? That's right. So there is a NASA probe that arrived there um, last year called MAVEN, which is working on studying how Mars's atmosphere is presently getting lost. And then there's a European orbiter that's launching in about two weeks called ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which is um, designed to look at um, rarer uh, elemental um, chemical molecular species in Mars's atmosphere and try to understand what the present day atmosphere is telling us about what happened to Mars's atmosphere in the past. Well, I see that you do a blog and, and try and provide a monthly update from all the probes that are out there in the solar system. And, and, and judging by how many are out there, that has to be a bit exhausting. It is. It's actually a lot of work to put that blog together. I do it once a month, and there are approximately 20 active spacecraft right now. Um, it's, it's a peak, actually, in robotic planetary exploration. The last few years have been what I call the, the golden age of planetary exploration. For a while, we had spacecraft at every inner planet, couple of outer planets, um, and a couple of small bodies. Those numbers are actually beginning to shrink, and over the next couple of years, we're going to see a reduction in the number of spacecraft that are out there. We're going to lose Cassini, which is an orbit uh, around Saturn. We'll lose that one in 2017. Um, once New Horizons passes by its Kuiper Belt object, that mission won't be studying planetary science anymore. We will lose Rosetta. We have just a couple of these asteroid missions. There's nothing active at Mercury. There's one spacecraft active at Venus. And there will be a period in 2018 when the only target that NASA is actively exploring beyond Earth is Mars. And that's going to be kind of, I mean, I like Mars. <laughs> but that will be kind of sad that our, our portfolio of planets will have shrunk so far. Well, you know, the Planetary Society, I know, advocates for, for more exploration. And we're certainly, certainly back you guys to the hilt on that because... This is such cool stuff. Absolutely. It is such cool stuff. And everybody loves it. You know, the space is like dinosaurs. There's, everybody's <laughs> a fan. Everybody wants to know why things are up there and why they're different, why Earth is unique, how did we get here, is there life elsewhere? And it, most people have these, these curious questions that they want to know the answer to, and, and it just makes planetary exploration fun. Plus, it, the, the pictures are just so awesome. 
And, and some of these pictures are available to anyone listening right now. They can go on the web and see some just stunning stuff. I, I recently watched that video of the Huygens probe landing on, on, on Saturn's moon of Titan. Can you talk a bit about Cassini? And just, I mean, I guess we're losing it next year, but my God, what a run it has had, what things that has taught us about uh, not just Saturn, but its rings, and also its, uh, its, its amazing set of moons. Yeah, Cassini has just been amazing, and, and it's been so fun to follow because it's one of the small number of missions that puts out all of their pictures straight to the Internet. So you can see images from Cassini almost as quickly as the science team does. The same is true for the Opportunity and Curiosity rovers. You can go to JPL's website and just see fresh, brand-new images from Saturn. It's tremendous. And so they arrived at Saturn in 2004, um, which was when it was summer in the southern hemisphere of Saturn. And because all the moons orbit Saturn in this plane of the equator, that meant it was summer everywhere. So we could see what was going on on the south poles of all the moons. Saturn orbits the sun much more slowly than Earth does. So now, uh, 12 years later, we're getting close to summer in the northern hemisphere. We've seen the seasons completely change. And so even though Cassini has been there since 2004, Cassini is still getting our first looks at some of this northern hemisphere territory that it's never had a chance to see before. So we're still doing new mapping. Cassini has discovered some amazing things like the geysers at Enceladus. Enceladus is a a really small moon. It's only 500 kilometers across. It's about a seventh the size of our own moon. And yet it's got these active geysers that are spewing a saltwater ocean into space all the time. Every time Cassini has looked at it, those geysers have been going. And that's just incredible. They've even flown Cassini right through the plumes to use a couple of Cassini's instruments to taste what the plumes are made of. And that's how we know they're salty. Wow. Uh, We're losing Cassini because, what, its it's fuel is being lost and we're going to have to crash it into Saturn? Is that that the plan? That's the plan, yeah. it's, It's running out of maneuvering fuel. And for any spacecraft that's in a place where there could conceivably, by any stretch of the imagination, be life. You want to make sure not to contaminate that place with um, the, the bacterial life that is likely still carried on Cassini that, was, that we couldn't avoid when we were building it here on Earth. And because Enceladus has this saltwater ocean, it, there is a glimmer of a possibility that there could be life on Enceladus. So we want to make sure that Cassini will never crash into Enceladus. <laughs> So to avoid that, they're going to deliberately crash Cassini into Saturn when it's close to being out of fuel. But before they do that, they're going to do something really tremendous. Um, Cassini's been orbiting outside Saturn's rings for its whole mission because whenever you orbit Saturn, you have to pass through the ring plane. And so you, you need to avoid those rings or else you can, you'll crash the spacecraft into a ring particle and that'll be the end of the mission. But right before the Cassini mission ends, they're going to do this special maneuver that makes it kind of leap over the rings and then inside the rings. So for a small number of orbits, it's going to pass once per orbit in between Saturn and the rings, which is just a, a death-defying thing to be doing. It's, it's astonishing. The views are going to be weird. We'll never have seen anything like that before. And once they've done this maneuver where they're orbiting the spacecraft in between Saturn and the rings, then the mission will come to a natural end because the shape of Saturn will tug on the orbit until the orbit drops lower and lower and lower, and finally one orbit, it'll intersect Saturn itself, and that'll be the end of Cassini. But we'll be able to watch it all the way down. It's just going to be wonderful. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I know we crashed into Jupiter uh, some years back, and and, uh, some people always maintain the idea, well, yes, the the space probe is going to burn up, it's going to crash in Jupiter, but... 
There are some who hold out hope that something might beat up in the atmosphere of these, these gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. I guess that's just thought to be very, very far-fetched. There is that, and also, if there is life in the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn, it can survive conditions that Earth life simply can't. The yeah. pressures and temperatures that you're talking about there are so high that uh, the space, anything that was living from Earth on the spacecraft wouldn't live in those conditions. We're only concerned about contaminating environments where Earth-like life can survive. And inside the atmosphere of Jupiter or Saturn is not a place where Earth-like life could survive. Well, I mean, it's been a great, great pleasure speaking with you. But before we close, I'd just like to ask you, uh, what, what are you looking most forward to uh, learning in, uh, say, 2016 in, in the missions that are still out there? Well, uh, I guess the thing that I'm most excited about this year is that we're about to have a new spacecraft arriving at Jupiter. That spacecraft's name is Juno, and it'll be the first mission to orbit over Jupiter's poles. So we'll get these views down and, and up onto Jupiter's poles that are nothing like we've ever seen before. That's going to be really tremendous. Yeah, I guess when we first got a look at Saturn's pole, we discovered these giant hexagons that are still, yeah. still, still baffling people. That's right. So who knows what awaits us at Jupiter? Wow. Emily Lockdewall, thank you so much for speaking with us. Keep up the good work on Planetary Radio with Matt Kaplan, and, and I hope we can have you uh, uh, on again sometime. Absolutely.